Well, last week we began a brand new series called The Knot. We're talking about marriage, and the first message we looked at is what pulls us together. And I've had so much response from that message this week, but this morning we're going to talk about what pulls us apart. Now, you need this message if you're married. You need this message if you're single because it will help you understand some of the dynamics that when you do get married, it can pull you apart. You need this message, by the way, if you're divorced and you want to be remarried, you need this message so you don't carry some of the same baggage into that marriage that was in your first marriage. I, I read this week about a man I had been married more than anybody else in America, and I figured it was probably going to be a Hollywood star. But this guy had been married 29 times. Can you imagine 29 times? A few years ago, I had a man come to me and says, my uh, fiance and I would really like it if you would marry us. They've been coming to the church. And um, I said, well, I'll be happy to marry you, but you know, we require 12 weeks of premarital counseling, two if you've been divorced, two extra if you've been divorced. He goes, oh, I don't need that. I've already been married four times. I know what it's all about. And I said, obviously, you do need counseling before you get married again. So we're going to look at what pulls us apart. But if you're a young person or you really need this marriage, and if you're a grandfather or grandmother, For a lot of kids today, you're the only godly influence in your family. Some of our members here at Woodland, they didn't come to Christ until long after their children had grown up, left home, and um, they had been divorced, or maybe their children had been divorced, and they have grandchildren, and they're the only godly influence in the lives of those kids. Grandparents, never underestimate your role. And by the way, I'll share this with you. As a grandfather, I want to be as intimately involved in the lives of my grandchildren as I can. And when I'm talking to them online, I always pray with them before we go. And uh, sometimes before I get done with the amen, I mean, they'll wait till I say amen, but then it's clicks off. One of my grandsons will say, Papa, I'm done talking now, and he's ready to go. But you want to be that influence in your kid's life. But today we want to look at what pulls us apart. There is a beautiful French proverb that says, all beginnings are lovely. All beginnings are lovely. And nothing could be truer. I love watching couples get started in marriage. I love watching people get started in business. I, beginnings are great. I love the beginning back when I was still running. I love the beginning of a race. And, and when you get ready to start and you, you, you come out of that gate, your friends, your family are there, everybody's cheering you on. And then as you continue that run, maybe you hit about mile 12, 13, and all of a sudden you hit that wall. And it's so nice to have people that are still cheering you on there, making you believe you can. But once you run through that wall, you get what runners call a second wind. And it really does happen. It's endorphins that are kicking in. And sometimes in marriage, we have those walls that we just have to keep pressing through, and you need people around you, like this church and your small group and godly family members and friends that keep cheering you on when you feel like you need to give up. Casting Crowns has a song that I think is just wonderful. It's called Slow Fade, but listen to the words of this chorus. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. And thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. 
People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. And after nearly 50 years of pastoring and preaching the gospel, brothers and sisters, I've got to be honest with you. Friends, I've got to be honest with you. This is what I've experienced in seeing people's life and their walk with Christ. They never realize that slow fade that is taking place in their life. It's what I've seen in marriages is that slow fade. We don't start out wanting to divorce. We don't start out wanting our marriage and our family to be pulled apart and our children going back and forth between homes. We don't start out on a second marriage wanting that to happen. And yet it does happen I pastored a couple in Georgia that there were five children and not one of them had the same father and mother and the the parents came to know Christ and it was a wonderful experience seeing them come to know Jesus but all of that past had brought baggage into their children as they tried to bring this blended family together and I don't want that to happen to your children, your grandchildren or to anyone at this church. I think the reason for this is it's important to understand and why, and I, I want to share this with you. I couldn't share it in the first service. There is, a, there is not a gravitational pull towards godliness. There's not a gravitational pull towards faithfulness. When you go to the ocean, the tides are predictable because of the predictability of the laws of nature that God has put in the gravitational pull of the moon upon the earth. When I worked in mental health, there was no scientific background for this, but we knew that on the night of a full moon, there was going to be more and more patients that needed treatment. We couldn't explain it. I remember talking to the psychiatrist that I worked with, and he says, there's no explanation for it. We just know that that's going to happen. There's not a gravitational pull towards selflessness in a marriage. There's not a gravitational pull towards putting the other first in marriage. There's not even a gravitational pull in marriage of delighting in the other because we all come to marriage thinking about what marriage is going to do for me. We think about the joy that the other person is going to bring into my life. You say, Pastor, how do you know this? Because I've done so many premarital counseling sessions, and you wait till you're about four or five weeks in, and then you say, I want to help you, and I want you to listen, because everything that you're saying is good, but you'll never get to that place that you want to get to as long as it's about you. It has to be delighting to one another. It has to be delighting in God's Word. And sometimes people, as they drift or they fade away, they begin to lose their disciplines that we encourage them to go into with marriage, the the disciplines that we talk about on how to have a conversation, how to have a conflict and still be in love with each other and be friends. We, We talk about those disciplines that you have to maintain in a marriage. And people tell me sometimes up front, they say, oh, we begin to relax there. And then a few years later, because I've had the privilege of pastoring here so long, we end up in counseling together or sending them to a counselor because of relaxation. The reason that you exercise daily, the reason that you diet daily is because you want the quality of your health to be good. And the reason we have spiritual disciplines and marital disciplines and family disciplines is because we want our family to be strong. 
Listen to that song this week on Spotify or Apple Music. It's a slow fade, and we don't realize what's happening. If you would, stand with me out of respect and reverence for the Word of God as we look at two verses of Scripture this morning. In Luke Gospel chapter 11, and Luke, by the way, wrote Luke and Acts, and Luke is my favorite gospel writer because of his emphasis upon the Holy Spirit. He helps us to see the activity and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so I would encourage you to frequently go back and read the gospel of Luke and then read the book of Acts and notice how the Holy Spirit helps us live and walk out this new life of faith that we have. But Jesus was talking, and Luke writes this down for us, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. Many people have described marriage as being like a municipality or a kingdom. And that's really true because every single one of your homes, wherever you're at, whether you live in Brownstown or Flat Rock or Woodhaven or New Boston or Wyandotte, wherever you live, your marriage, your home is a principality of the kingdom of heaven being represented there. Your guests that come in and out, they see how the kingdom of heaven works. They see how the love of God is manifested. They see how relationships are reconciled. When people walk past your house, I'm sure you've experienced this as we have, when people walk by and say, what is it that we feel when we come by here? It's the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in your family's life and in the joy in the relationships. It's not the house. It's not the lawn. It's the lives that are being lived there together, inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus warns us of those things that can pull us apart, and if it does, it dooms our family. And then speaking of anger, the Lord says in the Word of God, don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Father, we love you. We trust your word. We believe it. And we know that as we apply it to our lives, that your Holy Spirit works in us so that we don't drift, but so that we are pulled closer and closer to the heart of Jesus. And I pray that you would manifest yourself in the lives of our marriages in our children, in our families, in our church, in our community. Lord, I ask you, let us be focused on what pulls us together, but aware of what pulls us apart. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. A few years ago, Becky and I, you can be seated. A few years ago, Becky and I went rock climbing with a friend of ours that gives these kind of tours. He's also a journalist, and we went rock climbing in the mountains. Now, I have repelled off of mountains, and I've enjoyed that. That was kind of scary and freaky until the rope caught you, and I enjoyed it. As a matter of fact, it was the Army Rangers that taught me how to repel years ago, and I just, I love that aspect. But all of a sudden, I looked at having to climb this cliff, and it just looked so far up there. And at the top of the cliff, he had drilled in and put a bell that when you reached the top, you rang the bell. And I was just amazed because when I came down from that mountain, I suddenly understood the scripture a little better. Don't give the devil a foothold. I, I don't have large fingers, 
But the tiny cracks in that rock, sometimes just the bare tips of my fingers would fit into that rock. Just the side of my shoes, or maybe just the very tip of the toe would fit into those cracks and crevices on the rock. I also was surprised at something else. I didn't know I could lift my leg as high as I could lift my leg because sometimes, you know, I, I, I could hear him saying, you know, I was on belay and I could hear him say, higher, you got to lift that leg higher. And I'd say, it won't go any higher. And he said, yes, it will. You got to go higher. You don't want to be a chicken and come down. Well, nothing can get a man like calling him a chicken. And so I stretched and stretched until I could finally get that little crack. And, and then it was always a risk to push up and go up a little higher. I was also amazed at how flexible my wife was. She went up that wall like a spider. And I was so proud of her. And maybe you saw the video I put of her going up there. But I learned from that that what looked like a sheer rock face almost it could be climbed because you could get a foothold, you could get a finger hold. And that's what Jesus is saying to us in the Bible. Don't give the devil a foothold in your marriage. These are not in your app, but I did a lot of, spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks just researching what are the things that pull marriages apart. And when I look at this list, I got to tell you, Becky and I have battled a lot of things that are on this list. Most of them my fault, I will be the first one to say. Unrealistic expectations. You might want to write some of these down if they resonate with you because all of us come into a marriage with a sense of expectation. Uh, yesterday, I was at a funeral that a friend of mine preached for a family member's mother from our congregation, and, and we went to to Southeastern University together. As a matter of fact, we used to call it Southeastern Bridal College. And I can remember all of us sitting around in the dorms and talking about what marriage was going to be like and how Becky was going to get up and bake biscuits the size of the palm of my hand every day. And there would be grits and eggs and bacon. And I was just so, I had these expectations for marriage. How many of you know that I'm an early morning person and my wife is not? How many of you know that was an unrealistic expectation? You know, my parents are both early risers. At 6 o'clock in the morning, my mom was putting biscuits in the oven. She was cooking the grits and frying the bacon. And it was just what I grew up with. It's what I expected. And I learned in a real big hurry that was not what Becky expected. It was unrealistic. There are defensive responses. There are times when our feelings are minimized. and say, why do you feel that way? Why are you wrestling with that? There's the naivete that comes to a marriage because couples go in and maybe they're naive about, especially if they've grown up in a Christian home and they haven't had the premarital counseling they need. Maybe they're naive about sex or maybe they're naive about relationships. Maybe as one couple told me, I never saw our parents argue. And so I met with their parents and said, oh, yes, we argued, but we never argued in front of our children. We went and we talked about it quietly and reasonably. I can tell you the Clanton children have seen their mom and dad argue before, but they've also seen us make up and make out after we've argued and even before. So there's a healthy way of learning how to do that. There's guarded emotions where people are afraid to share who they are 
are and what's going on in their life because maybe they will be rejected if the real them is seen. There's the unaccepting attitudes, the differences of opinions. Sometimes it's just the sheer busyness of life. And more than once, Becky has had to call me down because my very nature is to do and to be busy. There's irritability and boredom. There's that drift, that fade that Casting Crowns sing about. There's crushing debt that comes in where a family's not able to eat or not able to pay their bills. There's pain from the past that crops up and comes in. And sometimes that pain from the past can be crippling and debilitating as memories of that come in from either an abused childhood or maybe from a marriage that, of a mother and father that fell apart or words that were said that... As I preached a message here one time, words are more dangerous than sticks because they don't leave you. Jason, I know some of what you're talking about because I grew up crippled. I've had over 40 major surgeries in my life. And this week I was talking with a young person about being bullied in school. And when I was able to share with them, yes, I know what it means to be slapped in the head and beat and, and things at school. It wasn't a pleasant experience, even though I loved studying. It wasn't a very pleasant experience at all, but I know what that means. And yet that brings pain from the past into your adulthood that you have to deal with and wrestle with. There's addictions, whether it's alcohol or whether it's drug addiction and how often I've had to deal with that. Not me personally, but with people having it. Can I just say this? Don't be fooled by alcohol. I don't know of anybody. My wife just said recently, I don't know of any marriage or anyone that's ever been helped by alcohol. There's infidelity and infertility, the pain of wanting a child, the pain of not being able to conceive a child. And so many times Becky and I have talked and prayed with couples because maybe the husband really wanted a son and his wife wasn't able to conceive or she really wanted a child and her husband was, was not able to, to give her that child that she wanted and the struggles those marriages have gone through. The loneliness of loss, especially when a child dies or when a baby dies. One of the men in our church congregation told me one time, said the most difficult period of our life was when our daughter died. He said our marriage almost didn't make it. Lack of personal space. And, and friends, sometimes, listen, intimacy can become an invasion of privacy because we don't allow the other person to bloom and grow like they're supposed to and we end up smothering them rather than wanting them to succeed and to grow children boy what a difference children a whole new becky emerged when our first son was born I didn't know that, Becky. I liked that, Becky, but there were some parts of the other Becky that I really, really missed a whole lot. And I remember that day so well, and so many times, guys and gals, we've talked about this thing where, where there's been this, 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 this whole marital change. And as I shared with you last week, as one philosopher professor, Dallas Willard, said, my wife has been married to five different men because that's how many distinct phases of life that I've gone through. There's also something that happens because life becomes busy and children becomes busy, and it really can pull a marriage apart, and that's where your sexual life becomes a thing of the past, that what God meant, now listen, listen carefully, especially if you're watching online, 
Sex is not the bricks of the marriage, but sexual intimacy is the concrete. It's the mortar mix that holds those bricks together. It's that intimacy that we share. And it's when we're most like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as we are one and life springs forth from that union. Yesterday, as we were talking with the pastor that I was referring, he walked back to where Becky and I were seated with and as he came up the aisle, one of my first thoughts as he came up the aisle was the night I was in his wedding at Bush Chapel at Southeastern. And when he came up the aisle, one of the first things he said, you know, in the funeral planning, he said, the daughter who goes to our church and her, her family that go to our church, he said, I brought up to them how you were in our marriage. And I thought, how uncanny that I was thinking about that as you walked up the aisle. And he says, I told them all about it. And we stood there laughing for just a moment. Becky and I were reflecting later how many people we know that had those lovely beginnings. But unlike this pastor and his wife and Becky and I, they've not finished well. Somewhere along the line, there's been a wall that's been hit. Somewhere along the line, they've stumbled and fallen. And, and I wish I could tell you that every marriage I've ever performed has, and I've performed, I guess, a thousand or more weddings through the years. Every marriage I performed had, had made it. I will tell you this, the overwhelming majority of them have made it because of the, I believe, because of the counseling and the commitment of those couples and because of a conviction I have, I will not marry a Christian to a non-Christian. I will not do that. The staff cannot do that. And, you know, I get calls all the time. And, I, you know, when the people find that out or find out about the counseling, then they change their minds. But what I'd like to do is talk to you about now that we've just kind of taken about 15 minutes and looked at what can pull us apart. We've looked at how the enemy can get a foothold in our life. I'd like you to look at what can pull our marriages together and what you have going for you this morning. It's one thing to say, if God be for me, who can be against me? It's another thing to know how to apply that. So number one, Every marriage, your marriage, if you're listening online, your marriage has hope. And if you remember, we spent Advent going through a series of messages about hope. And hope is built upon the character and the goodness and the promises of God. This week, I was talking with someone and praying with someone, going through a difficult trial in their lives. I said, Pastor, that series of messages, I had no idea how it was going to sustain me because I keep reminding myself my hope is built upon the promises of God, and God does not change. His character and His goodness remain. Friends, every one of us have hope, especially if our life is built upon Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 11 and verse 1, the Bible says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Now, notice this. Faith is the evidence of what you're hoping for. So often, people keep focusing on what the hope is, but what I want you to see for just a moment is what faith is a manifestation of. Faith is a manifestation that you have hope. You have hope for your marriage. You have hope for your children. You have hope for your future. And because you have faith, then God says that's evidence and it's reality of the substance of what God is going to do in your life. So you could look at it like this, and if it's not in your outline, you may want to write this down. 
Hope consists of two things that will cause faith to manifest in your life, and your faith will overcome the issues and the problems that you're facing. Faith consists of desire. What is it you really want? What is it you really desire? If you're just getting married, or if you're a single, if you're divorced and you're getting married again, what is it you really desire? Jesus says, ask of me whatsoever things you desire with all your heart, and that will I do for you. Years ago, a man who owned a large timber company just told me brokenhearted how he gave, told his daughter, he said, I'll give you anything you want for graduation. He said, she could have asked me for a college education. She could have asked me for a car. Whatever she asks, I have the resources to give her whatever she dreams of. But you know what she wanted? She wanted a stereo. That's all my daughter has hopes for is a stereo. Friends, don't limit your hope to the material things of this life that can be purchased with hard work. Build your hope on Jesus Christ and ask for the things that God tells us to ask for. A strong family, successful children, godly children, a godly nation. Ask for revival. Hope for that with all of your heart, that your home will be a manifestation of the kingdom. Jesus said, if you ask in my name, according to my will, this is your confidence that you will have what you ask for, and you can have a godly marriage. And the next thing is then believe. And belief is so important. Don't miss this. You may want to write this down. This is good stuff that I'm preaching to you this morning. You see, the more you fear something, the less your faith becomes. The more you fear something, the less your desire comes. And so if you're afraid your marriage is going to fail, your faith and your desire will begin to diminish while your fear increases in life. And so as you ask God, have the faith in God that God can do all things. Nothing is impossible with God. The second thing I'd say, if you're going through these things that are pulling you apart, you've got to learn to identify with your spouse. You've got to learn to identify with your wife or with your husband. After the first service this morning, it was amazing some of the conversations that I have with people on this particular point. You see, for me to identify with Becky, there's not a female hormone in my body. There's not a female bone in my body. Just about everything that I love is not Becky's favorite thing to do. We're very different. And so the only way I can learn to identify with Becky is to listen to Becky. And the only way I can listen to Becky is for Becky to tell me what she wants. And ladies, she's always been good about that. Please, please, please never say to a husband, if you love me, you'd know what I want. I am not Madame Watusi. I don't protect the future. I don't pretend to know what anybody, every once in a while, I, I, I mean, you know, I've always been, I'm not a real mystical fellow. I love to study the word. I believe the word, but every once in a while, God will use me with the spiritual gift of the word of knowledge, and I don't even realize I'm being used in it. Last Sunday, I was praying with someone here at the church, and they're a very mature, very solid Christian, and I just prayed what the Lord was laying on my heart, and after church, they, they emailed me and says, Pastor, I don't think you know, but you were actually speaking a word of knowledge over this situation. There's no way you could have known what you were praying about. And I just give God the glory for that. But here's the point. 
a word of knowledge doesn't always, you don't want to always wait on a word of knowledge for what's wrong with your wife or with your husband. If Becky's having a bad day, I don't go, God, would you give me a word of knowledge so I'll know how to prophetically deal with this? We would have hit the rocks a long time ago. But learn to listen. Learn to put yourself in those shoes. The Bible says in Romans chapter 15 and verse 2, we should think of their good. Try to help them by doing what pleases them. My ministry description in life is to please Becky. That's more important than anything else I do as a pastor or in our community or even with our children. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as we looked at last week, my job is to work at pleasing Becky. Try to help them. And how do I help them? By doing what pleases Becky. Now, this is why you want to marry someone that loves God more than you do. This is why you want to marry someone that loves the Lord and is passionately committed to Jesus, that they're trying to live out our mission statement with the help of the Holy Spirit to celebrate God's love by persuading others to become passionate followers of Christ. We don't just say we're disciples. We want to live passionate lives for him. I want to preach with passion. I love what D.L. Moody said. People ask him why his ministry was so successful. He said, I just pray myself on fire, and then people come and watch me burn. You see, there is a passion that we have to have in our lives. One of the things that I've learned through all these decades of pastoring in my own life, living and in listening to others, is there is a drift that can take place. There is a fade that can take place from where we compliment, where we encourage, and where we exhort our spouses to where we drift towards complaint. As a matter of fact, if things aren't changing to please us, that it seems like the most natural and logical response to complain. Do you know the most successful marriage couples, do you know what they have in common? And I'm going to just get so sunk after I say this. My life is about to take a drastic change. The most successful couples have in common their Christian faith, and number two, I'm not kidding you, they wash dishes together. They wash dishes together. There's something about coming to a kitchen sink where your kids pile up dishes all day and there's the cereal milk from this morning that is kind of soured and the flakes have gotten sticky on the bowl. There's something else that, you know, you don't know why they didn't rinse it out. And you can choose to gripe at those lousy kids or your wife, when I read that this week, I dropped to my knees and said, God, I'm so sorry. Because now I got to help Becky wash dishes. Because as they share the most disgusting things, they're working as a team. They're pulling together. And the psychological study says it's not the dishes as much as they share both the good and the ugly together. Walt Whitman said these words, and I think they're so wise. I do not ask how the wounded one feels. I myself become the wounded one. And that's what happens when I identify with my wife. It's what happens when I identify. I suddenly begin to feel what she feels. When she just doesn't tell me the facts, ma'am, as Joe Friday said in Dragnet, but she tells you 
how she feels. When you said that, it made me feel belittled. When you said that, it made me feel like I wasn't contributing. When you said that, I just felt crushed. I can feel, listen to me, I can feel that word crushed. It's not just here. I can feel that in my bones. When you say that word belittle, I can feel that in my spirit. I, I felt smothered. I can feel that in my soul. And that's what Whitman is getting at. You're not just listening, but you put yourself in their shoes and you identify and then the third thing, if your marriage is being pulled apart, you've got to learn the process of forgiveness. Would you say that phrase with me? The process of forgiveness. Let's say it together. The process of forgiveness. One more time. The process of forgiveness. Now say just the word process and say it really loudly. Process. One more time. Process. If I have learned anything, and I didn't learn this in theology class, I didn't learn this in an online class. But in life experience, especially growing up with some of the painful memories I have from the past, especially as a child, not from my parents, but those years of belittling and crushing and beating and praying and asking God to do a miracle and a miracle not happening in my life and going all those years standing outside of Crippled Children Clinic and making Georgia not too long ago and looking up there and reliving some of those painful moments of braces and hips being broken and pulled back around together because they were all backwards. As I relived that moment, I found myself standing on the sidewalk with tears coming out of my eyes and someone said, sir, are you okay? I said, no, I'm just so thankful. I said, I used to be one of the children in that building, and it still has the marble sign upon it. And they go, really? You see, there is a process. Not long ago, when I came back from Asia, and I had E. coli so bad that resulted in five major surgeries, and my muscles and my skin, and sinews, everything was becoming infected and they would have to remove it. Matter of fact, Ed, you bought me a brace that, that helped hold me together for a long time during that period of my life. Going through all of that, I remember there's going in a, 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 just maybe about the half the size of this iPad. The wound had become infected from the bottom up and without any anesthesia, when the doctor saw it, he just put his fingers right into the wound and ripped it open like that and I screamed and the hiss and all the infection that become pouring out of that. I don't say that to gross you out, but it was painful. I want you to feel what I'm going to say to you. The fact that memories come back to you doesn't mean you haven't forgiven. It means you have to forgive over and over again. Forgiveness is a process. There will be memories, there will be fears, there will be hurts, there will be pain that will erupt in your life. And if you don't deal with it with God, you don't have to go back to the person that wounded you. You forgave them, but you don't have to go back to the person and, and reopen that wound in their life. They need to be released. I'll show you how to do that in a moment. But you don't need to go back to your husband or your wife and say, do you remember when you did this? Or do you remember when that happened? 
But what you do is you go to God and you say, God, help me. I'm in this, pro- this memory is coming. It's like it's ripped open and it's so painful again. It's hurting me so bad. Lord, why did this happen? Why did this have to happen? And as you go through that process of forgiving all over again, you begin to experience the healing grace of God that only comes to those who forgive, not to those who don't forgive. And let me illustrate that in two ways. Those of you that have lost a wife, those of you that have lost a child, those of you that have lost a grandparent, you're very close to. You've recovered, you've lifted your head, you're walking on in life, but one day a memory comes back and you find yourself crying and grieving. That's healthy. That's your love for them. That's your missing them. Forgiveness is the same way. A memory of a scar might break open, but the important thing is to always be in the process of forgiving. Would you say that word to me again? Process. Let me show you how this works in the Bible. Matthew 18, 27. I think most of us are familiar with the story, but in case some on our own line audience aren't, there was a man who owed a huge debt that he couldn't pay. We used to sing a song when I was in youth ministry. He, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. He could not pay this debt. And so the king forgave him of his debt. And notice how the king forgave this man who couldn't repay his debt. His master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave his debt. I want you to circle these three words, pity, released, and forgave. Would you do that in your Bibles or in your outline right now? Pity, released, and forgave. To have pity is to have compassion. To have pity is to sympathize, to, to say, I understand. You, it may Listen, forgiveness is a process. You may not be there right away. Some people try to forgive too quickly. You may have to, there have been things in the past that I think I tried to forgive too quickly because I was taught, you got to forgive right now. You got to forgive right now. And it covered up the wound. It covered up the hurt. It covered up the pain. And it erupted and infected in the bottom. And somehow or another, by God, God's grace, he ripped that open and says, we've got to deal with this. And memories that you kept shoving down, and I should have known from my work in mental health, but memories you kept shoving down, they come back up, and God heals you of those as you release that pain to God and as you release that other person from your judgment and your bitterness, and you choose to forgive. And release just simply means you let it go. You just, you take, to, to forgive means you release. You, it's all a part of the process. And then you forgive. So let me give you some really quick suggestions for how you handle these times in your marriage. Number one, if there's something you've got to deal with, especially that requires forgiveness, choose the right time in the right place. Don't let the bed be where you talk about these problems. Save your marriage bed for what God says it is. The marriage bed is holy and undefiled. It should be a place of celebration and joy. Have the right attitude. Have a positive attitude. Pastor Chuck Swindoll says the more he goes through life, the most important attribute that any of us have is our attitude. John Maxwell says that attitude determines our altitude. Pastor Swindoll, Swindoll went on to say it's more important than how much money you make. It's more important than what kind of education you've got. It's more important than the skills that you have. It's the most important thing in your life. And married couples whose marriages are successful, they have a positive, <coughs> hope-filled, faith faith-filled attitude. 
Let me illustrate it like this. And I know this to be true. If I believe that you're a good person, I'm always going to see the good in your life. But if I believe I can't trust you, I'm always going to see the reasons that I can't trust you. If I believe that you're a loving person, then I'm always going to see the loveliness in your life. But if I believe that you're a hateful person, I'm always going to see that. If I believe that you're diligent, I will always see you and catch you doing something good and right. But if I believe you're slothful, I will always see that. And so that's why it's important, as the scripture tells us, how we think, how we take captive our thoughts. So have a positive attitude. And then let me just encourage you to do this, that you will also refuse to be the victim. You see, if you're the victim... You've got no choice. I told you some very personal things this morning. I came in to see my dad one day, and I can see this as clear. I had a colostomy that smelled to high heaven, wore bags around my waist, sick. I couldn't control it. Sometimes I'd walk out of a classroom and that bag just filled up. I didn't know what was happening and bowels would be running down my leg and kids would be saying vulgar things to me as I walked out of the classroom. I came to dad one time. I said, dad, I can't do it anymore. They're so mean. It's this, it's that. Teachers were good. The principal was good. My dad looked at me and he says, okay. And he took me to a crippled children's school that the state of Georgia would have paid for. And we went through that school, and I saw kids that everything was done for them. And we went back out to my dad's pickup truck, and he said, do you want to live like that, or do you want to learn how to win? Do you want to live like that, or do you want to learn how to beat these things? You cannot live as a victim, Denny. God has more for you than that. And that may sound cruel to you, but that was a defining moment in my life that changed the whole trajectory of my life. Give yourself, give your spouse grace. God will give you grace. And then finally this morning, I will work towards reestablishing our marriage love. I will work towards establishing our marriage love. Our first love, if you'll think of it that way. I chose to use this word rather than reconciliation because for most people, when you say reconciliation, it just simply means you've called a truce. I was praying and counseling with a couple, and they said, well, we've reconciled. And I said, what do you mean you've reconciled? You've got these major issues. Well, I sleep in this bedroom. She sleeps in that bedroom. And, you know, we just don't talk to each other, but for the sake of the kids, we're not going to divorce. I said, that's not reconciliation. That's just a truce. You've You've ceased fire. You're, you're like a cold war. You can't say, that's not what God has for you. God has something more for you. God wants you to reestablish that relationship. And it may take counseling. It may take meeting with a pastor or meeting with a counselor. You see, God wants you and your family to be one. 
You see, reconciliation, reestablishing relationships brings the we into it. Do you remember how that I said that the couples that are most successful in marriage, they're not lost people, they're the most successful couples on average, put Christ first in their life, they believe the Bible is the word of God, but they work together as a team, they do things like doing dirty dishes together. Those couples work on reestablishing and keeping a relationship. But you see, I think Frederick Beekner hits the nail on the head when he wrote these words, and just follow along with me on the screen. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. To lick your wounds and smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel of the pain you're giving back to them, in many ways is a feast for a king. Now hold it right there. How, hold it, yeah. How many of you, you've had a blow up with somebody and you're driving down the road and you're thinking about it and then you remember something you wish you would have said? <laughs> you just like the first service. Everybody was laughing. You go, next time I'm going to just say this. And you see it happen in your head, and you plunge that sword in, and you pull it up, and you go, I won. <sighs> there is no I in we. And if we're not careful, it becomes a delicious meal. But Beekner wraps up this statement by saying, the chief drawback is that what you were wolfing down at the feast is yourself, and the skeleton at the feast is you. So how do we do this? Colossians 3 and verse 12. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Would you let me just put a word here? Perfect matrimony. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect matrimony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts for as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Sweetheart, would you bring me the glass and the juice? I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning. Thank you so much. Maybe about a month ago, as I was preparing for this message, I... I passed by Becky's china cabinet, and I don't know where you hit the crystal that I bought you in <laughs> Salzburg, but um, that's my favorite. This is hers. This is antique. It's very fragile. So pray for me that I don't break it so I don't have to reestablish relationship this morning. But it is very pretty. It's very fragile. It's kind of like your life, but it's also kind of like your marriage. And I've tried to keep emphasizing over and over this morning that those who put Christ first in their life, I mean, regardless of whether you love the Lord, regardless of where you're serving Jesus, you are created in the image of God. Your life is lovely. Your life is beautiful. The, God is beautiful. You want to know what God is like? The fruit of a godly life is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and long-suffering and self-control. I mean, I could go on. What Christ did for us at Calvary, this cross to my left, is shed his blood. 
And I chose this red juice this morning to show you that even though this marriage or your life is beautiful, look how it's transformed when the blood of Jesus covers your sins and Christ comes to live within you. And suddenly, this beautiful, fragile goblet, it changes right before our eyes. All things become new. And if my hands were steadier, I would have filled it to the brim so that the trace of the crystal could no longer be seen, but only the life of Christ in us. There is nothing that will strengthen and make your life more beautiful than a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And when he comes into your heart, when he comes into your marriage, all things become new. Billy Graham in The Decision Magazine, before he died, there was a story of a woman and her husband that were divorcing. She just saw, for some reason, an advertisement on an evangel for an evangelical church on TV, and she decided to go. She said, that morning as I listened to the message, I knew, I knew I wanted Jesus as Lord of my life. Her husband saw such a difference in her life and such a change, serially unfaithful, coming in late at night. He saw such a change in her life that he said to her, can I go to church with you this Sunday? So he went with her, and that morning he gave his life to Jesus. And they were writing their story of the difference God had made them. Oh yeah, I agree. Everything's beautiful. Your life has merit and value, but everything changes for what God meant it to be when Christ is the center of your heart. So Pastor Corey's gonna come right now, and he's gonna lead us, and we're gonna take communion together. Before he does, come on up, Corey. I wanna pray over you. Lord Jesus, I pray that we will look for intentional ways to express our love. I pray this week we're gonna look for creative ways to communicate with one another. I pray that you're gonna change our attitudes from defeat to those filled with hopeful faith. God, you intended for our marriages to be a joyous and a happy, Christ-filled relationship so that whenever anyone walks by our home, they sense this is a part of the kingdom of heaven. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Corey, I'm gonna leave this glass here because I want everybody to continue looking at that. And then Corey's gonna lead us together and then you can dismiss us, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. God, you've given us illustrations of marriage as an illustration of our relationship with you. And Lord, you've given us the illustration of communion, of what you've done for us. 
And so, Lord, as we hold this bread and this cup, God, we're reminded of the night that you were betrayed and how you gave your life for us. Your body was broken and you shed your blood so that we could be forgiven. And so at this time, I just want you to take a moment and just examine your heart and see if there's anything that you need to confess to the Lord before we take communion. Lord, as we hold this bread, we say thank you for your body that was broken. God, for what you did at Calvary on that cross. And Lord, we thank you that the word says that by your stripes we are healed. And so we pray right now for those that need healing. God, that you would do what only you can do. And that you would heal them, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's break the bread and partake together. Lord, as we hold this cup, God, we say thank you for this cup represents your blood that was shed for us. Lord, we know the Bible says that without the shedding of the blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. And so you took on our sin. God, you knew no sin and you became sin for us. And you died and you shed your blood so that we could be forgiven. Our relationship with you could be restored. And God, this morning we just pause to say thank you and we love you. Let's partake together this morning. And Father, we do thank you for the love that was demonstrated at Calvary. God, we thank you that once again, God, that love doesn't end. God, it's new every morning. And Lord, we look forward to the day of your return. And God, while we're still here, Lord, may you continue to allow us to be your light. God, may we shine bright in this world demonstrating who you are. God, sharing of your love and your goodness to all those that we encounter, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you so much for joining with us. And if you prayed that prayer with Pastor today and crossed that line of faith, we have a book we'd love to give to you as you exit. Just stop by the crossing there and ask for it. We'd be glad to give it to you. And if you're watching online and you prayed that prayer as well, We'd love to send you that book. If you'd email us at info at woodland.church and let us know you prayed that prayer, we'd be glad to send it to you as well. Well, God bless you. Go in peace and have a wonderful week.